0: Thank you, Cindy, for that ministry of music. Appreciate the reading of the word of God this morning. Some temptations are more subtle than others. The temptation that we are going to consider is an example of an extremely subtle and cunning temptation that the evil one provides. It is a subtle temptation Because it employs the word of God. Satan is going to come and say it is written. And so Satan is going to tempt Jesus with all things the word of God. And we want to look at that in some detail and application. And secondly, it is a cunning temptation because it comes in response to Jesus's faithfully resisting the first temptation. There is a direct link between the first and second temptations that we are going to look at this morning. So our theme is observation and lessons to be learned from Satan's second temptation of Jesus. Observations and lessons to be learned from Satan's second temptation of Jesus. Those observations and lessons are going to come primarily at the end of the message as opposed to being woven through it. But first, before we can make the application, we need to fully understand the temptation and the text. So, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, if you're not there. And we begin by looking at the setting of the temptation. The setting of the temptation, and first of all, the time of the temptation. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. It begins with the simple word, then. Then the devil took him into the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. The then refers to its taking place after the first temptation, which was successfully resisted. Before I, I go on, I, I felt like I had to make an aside this morning and bring to your attention, because many of you would be aware of it, and that I'm going to make such a strong point about the order of the temptations, that uh, we need to realize that in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, where the temptations are recorded, they uh, do not appear in the same order. Both Matthew and Luke have turning the stone into bread as the first temptation. Matthew has Jesus throwing himself off the temple as the second temptation, where Luke has it as the third. So Matthew and Luke... Uh, have the second and third temptations in reverse order. And so anyone who's concerned with the accuracy of the scriptures probably wonders uh, why is that the case and which is the correct chronological order. So let me begin with that first statement, second statement, which is the correct chronological order. And I submit to you that it is the book of Matthew. And I believe that because of the temporal or time words in the text. Matthew chapter 4 verse 5 says, Then the devil took him into the holy city. Matthew chapter 4 verse 8 says, Again, meaning the second time. So these are temporal or time words. Luke does not use temporal or time words to introduce the temptations. Luke does not use then and again. Rather, Luke uses the simple conjunction and. Luke 4, 5. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Luke 4, 9. And he led him to Jerusalem. So there are no contradictions here. What we have is simply this. Matthew gives us the chronological order and arranges the uh, temptations in a chronological order. In the book of Luke, we have them in a thematic order. And uh, they're presented in such a way as to embellish a theme that is developed in the book of Luke. So, no inconsistency, uh, perfectly understandable. But today, we have this chronological order. And that chronological order is, again, very important. The first temptation came as a result Of Jesus' being hungry after having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Look with me at verse 1. Then, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Then again is another time word. And it's talking about having just been baptized by John the Baptist. And having heard that glorious statement, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Satan picks up on that declaration of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and is going to tempt Jesus in the area of his sonship. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if these things are true, then why are you experiencing this? So he led them led Jesus into the wilderness To be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He then became hungry. And the tempter said to him. If you are the son of God. Command these stones to become bread. Satan tempted Jesus. To perform a miracle. Turning the stones into bread. Two weeks ago. I looked at this. Temptation in some detail. And noted that Jesus resisted that temptation. Quoting from Deuteronomy. Matthew, chapter 4, verse 4. But he, that is Jesus, answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The emphasis is on the word man, man. I said that there was nothing sinful in and of of itself for Jesus to have turned the uh, stone into bread. There's no place in the scripture that says thou shall not turn stone into bread But uh, Jesus understood the significance of the temptation. Though Jesus was the eternal son of God, he took upon himself humanity in order to be a sacrifice for our sins. He came to live as a human and humans do not turn stone into bread as a means of providing food for themselves. Humans have to rely upon God's provision. And so we are taught by Jesus himself to pray. Uh, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus, as being the Son of Man, was willing to submit himself to the will of God the Father, and was going to rely upon the Father for the provision of food, as opposed to. Uh, forsaking identity with mankind and providing for himself in a miraculous way the food that he would eat. But now, in the subtlety and cunning of the evil one, the scripture that Jesus quoted is going to be the source of the second temptation. Notice verse 4. But he, that is Jesus, answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. It is this second half of the verse that Satan is going to tempt Jesus with. But on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Those words will provide the basis for the second temptation of Christ. Does Jesus really trust in every word that comes out of the mouth of God? All right, Jesus, you trust the Father for your provision of daily food. But do you really trust every word that God says? Notice the source of the temptation. First, it's the devil. Verse five, then the devil Took him. The same individual referred to earlier in the text. As the tempter. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him. So first of all he's referred to as the tempter. And now he's referred to as. As the evil one. Or as uh, the devil. The devil is both. A tempter and a deceiver. Satan now not only seeks to tempt Jesus. But. To deceive Jesus. And it is that it is in that area of deception. That Satan webs his tangled weave. And web in order to uh, snare Jesus. The place of the temptation. Is the pinnacle or highest point of the temple. Matthew chapter 4 verse 5. Then the devil took him. uh, into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple according to the Jewish historian Josephus at the corner of the royal porch and Solomon's porch was a drop of 450 feet in the valley of the uh, kindred brook so in the kindred valley if you stood at the highest point of the temple environs you would look over the wall And there below you would be a drop-off of 450 feet. Satan is going to encourage Jesus to jump off that wall into a ravine 450 feet below. So let's look at the devil speaks... In order to tempt Jesus. The first thing we note is that the devil quotes the scripture to Jesus. Matthew chapter 4 verse 6. And said to him. If you are the son of God. Throw yourself down. For it is written. Exact same words Jesus had said. It said it is written. Satan comes back and says. Well it, it is written this. He will give his angels charge concerning you. And on your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Again, this follows on the words of Matthew 4.4. Man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, do you believe this? I would encourage you to note that the quotation is an accurate quotation of Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Satan does not misquote the scripture. He states the scripture accurately. He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan says, in essence, if you trust every word that comes out of God's mouth, then you will believe that God will place angels in charge over you and their hands will bear you up so that your feet will not be crushed against those stones that are 450 feet below. So if you really are the beloved son of God, if you really are that one in whom God says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If that's who you are, then throw yourself off the wall because God's word says that he will send angels to hold you up and to keep you from dashing your body, your foot against those stones below. So he uses the word of God. Quotes it accurately. Says to Jesus, if you believe every word, then what about these words? What about this promise? Do you really believe that promise, Jesus? Do you really believe you are the Son of God? Do you really believe that God is pleased with you? And throw yourself off. Because God has said that He will bear you up. And there will nothing happen to you. Jesus' response to the temptation. In response to Satan's quotation of Scripture, Jesus Himself quotes Scripture. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, On the other hand, there's more to the story of this. There is more scripture to be considered. On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, Jesus quotes scripture to overcome the temptation. And I noted that week number one, that the scriptures that Jesus chooses are not random by any means. He's not just quoting scripture, but he's quoting quoting relevant, practical scripture that addresses the issue that is before him. He shows insight. He shows understanding. He realizes what is at stake in this temptation. The quotation is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, which reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then it goes on. As you tested him in Massa. Now, Jesus quotes the first half of the verse. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But he understands the context of the verse and he understands what the verse means. Because it says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massa. So then the question is, well, what was that? What does that refer to? NASA is a location. and refers to an incident that took place when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. It's recorded in the book of Exodus. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they they were brought to a place by the cloud that appeared by day and the fiery pillar by night. They were brought to a place by the leading and direction of. Of God. Just as Jesus had been brought to a place by the leading and direction of God that he had been in the wilderness. And when they were brought to that place, lo and behold, there was no water to drink, there was no water to sustain them. And as a result, they began to grumble and complain. And say to Moses, why have you led us here in order that we might die in the wilderness? And so they questioned and said, was God really with them? Would he keep his word? Was he going to lead them into the promised land or were they going to die of thirst? God, of course, did keep his word and. Provided for them miraculously from the water that flowed from the rock. That's the story. That's the context. But the issue was, was God going to keep his word? And God was angered at the Israelites because they doubted whether God would keep his word or not. They doubted the faithfulness of God. They doubted his provision. And so when Satan comes and says to Jesus, the word of God says that he will bear you up by angels, throw yourself off. Jesus said, I have no right to test the faithfulness of God or the validity of his word. He will preserve me. I know he will preserve me. I'm not going to put God to the test because the word says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In response to Satan's second challenge, Jesus took the matter back to scripture, quoted Moses from Deuteronomy 616, which prohibited testing God in this way. So Jesus now applies that scripture to his situation. Jesus was not going to demand that God prove himself to be a keeper of his word. He would not throw himself off a pinnacle just to provide, prove that God would send angels to protect him. Jesus did not doubt the word of the Father. Jesus knew that the Father would keep his word in protecting Jesus. And God would send angels if necessary. And he did send angels to help Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 4 verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Uh, God would provide help for Jesus. He knew that. He wasn't going to succumb to that temptation. That's the story. That's the context. So, I want to slow down now and think about some observations and lessons concerning temptation. First, observations regarding Satan's use of scripture. Observation number one. It appears that Satan is well versed in the scriptures. There is every indication that Satan knows the word of God thoroughly. And no wonder, because 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 14 says... And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That one of the temptations that, Jesus, that that one of the instruments of temptation that Satan uses is to transform himself into an angel of light. That he looks like one who is disseminating truth. In order to disseminate falsehood, he corrupts the word of God. So it appears that, he knows the word of God. I didn't know how much time I was going to have. I went through the first part pretty quickly because one of the things I was going to do is trace through the scriptures what the demons know about the scripture. And it's really pretty amazing. And just to give you one example, uh, if you remember Legion, he is the man who has a thousand demons. Uh, when Jesus approaches Legion, these thousand demons that are possessing this man, They say to Jesus, Jesus, thou son of God, oh, he's the son of God. Why do you torment us? Key words before the time. Before the time. They knew that there was a time coming in which they are going to be tormented. Satan knows the end. Satan knows how it turns out. Satan knows what his final destiny is going to be. The demonic world knows. Why are you tormenting us before the time? There's going to be a time of torment, and they know it's not now. So they said, why are you tormenting us now? And they say to Jesus, cast us into the swine. And Jesus permits them to be cast into the swine because it was not the time to torment them. That was not the time of judgment. They knew that. They understood it. They applied it. The evil one is very, very familiar with Scripture. Second, and I think this is extremely important. Second, Satan quotes the Scripture accurately, word for word the accurate quotation of scripture but what he does is misapply it what he does is misapply it the scripture warns us to be aware and on guard against those who will misapply and twist the scriptures second peter 3:15 and 16 And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Two categories, the unlearned and the unstable. They distort or twist the scriptures. In Second Peter, it's about the Lord's return. And the question is, why hasn't he returned yet? And they distort or twist the scriptures. And so Peter says, Paul wrote things that are hard and difficult to understand, but now they take them and they twist them and distort them. Lesson. Important lesson. Just because a person uses scripture, it does not mean that their teachings are to be followed. The question is, are they using the scripture accurately? Is the application justified from the text? Many, many false teachers will open the scriptures. And read from them and read accurately. But then they will go on to expound and apply those scriptures in inaccurate and inappropriate ways. All too often, people will quote scripture and then make application that has nothing to do with what they just quoted or read. We need to be discerning and listening to how the Word of God is applied. Listen to the words of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 11. This was not coordinated uh, with Pastor Heller this morning. This was just a matter of providence. Ephesians 4, says, And he, that is God, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain To the unity of the faith. Till we all come to the same place. The same unity. The same understanding of the faith. That's my primary responsibility. Is to bring us all to the place where we understand scripture the same way. That there is unity among us as to what the scripture says and how it is to be applied. Until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we would become spiritually mature. Ephesians 4.14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We should get to the place where we are not swayed like a tree that bows in the wind. We should not be moving vacillating back and forth when we hear different interpretations of Scripture. When we hear doctrines different from what we have been taught, we ought to know what we believe. And we should know. Why we believe it. That is maturity. Now notice these words. As a result we are no longer to be children. Tossed here and there by waves. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men. By craftiness. In deceitful scheming. By the. Trickery of men. By craftiness. In deceitful scheming. People craftily, cunningly interpret the Word of God incorrectly. They are out to deceive. I was given an assignment when I was in seminary. We were in a minor prophet, kind of an obscure situation and uh, the professor took me aside and he said I want to try something he said I'm going to divide the class into debating teams and he said "Uh, I have this position that uh, is held by the cults and he said I want you to defend it he said I want you to convince this class that that's the truth he said, I want to see what the class does. And uh, he said, at the end, we're going to vote on uh, what position is the right position. And it was pretty bizarre. But that was, that was the point. Purposefully mislead the class. Strange assignment. So, I did. I went to very obscure passages of scripture that I didn't think most people would understand the context Quoted things out of context, moved things around. And to make a long story short, we took a vote. And the class took that as being the right interpretation of the scriptures. And it was false. It was wrong. They were misled. There are people that are, A, intentionally misleading others. For their own aggrandizement, for their own importance, for their own wealth, for their own building up their kingdom for many, many selfish and evil and sinful reasons. And secondly, there are a lot of ignorant and unlearned people that are misleading others simply because they don't know the truth or understand it well enough themselves. And here is where we as Bible-believing Christians can be easily tempted. Tempted in two ways. First, tempted through gullibility. Gullibility. Don't believe everything you hear. And don't believe it just because the person quotes scripture. That's not good enough. Are they faithful to the text? Are they applying it correctly? Is what they are saying the truth? Secondly, tempted through a false sense of humility. Somehow, somewhere, and I believe it really is of the evil one, that there is a growing consensus in evangelicalism that we really can't get to the bottom of matters. We really can't get to the truth. There are so many different views, so many different ideas out there. Who's to say what is right and wrong? That postmodern thought is radically entering into the church. Pastor Heller mentioned this morning Martin Luther and uh, the the, uh, nailing of the 95 theses to uh, the church door in Wittenberg where he had 95 issues with the Catholic Church. 95 areas that Martin Luther thought that they were wanting, deficient in their understanding of scriptures. And thus became the Protestant Revolution. Protestant is a word that comes from protesters. They were protesters. That's our history. And he stood up. And as Pastor mentioned this morning in his prayer, he said, Sola Scriptura, which means only the scriptures. Don't give me Pope edicts. Don't give me tradition. Martin Luther challenged the church and said, prove me wrong by the word of God. For here I stand, I can do no other. He was standing firmly on the word of God. And many people stood with Martin Luther on the word of God. We need to be people who stand on the word of God. And quite frankly, it's a top out It's a top out To say there are so many different ideas out there. Sure they are. But they can't all be right. And it's our responsibility to look carefully enough and discerningly enough that we understand truth from error. That we understand how to put the Word of God together so that it doesn't contradict art itself. Jesus, of course, was able to do that. We need to be able to do that as well. It's important to know what we believe and to know why we believe it. And that belief is based on an accurate interpretation of the scripture. I preach and teach the way I do very, very Intentionally. And some people may find it to be a a, a bit um, tedious. Because especially if you're in my Sunday school or if you're in my Sunday nights. I give you handouts, pages of stuff. Of which I will quote a portion of scripture and then underline where that idea comes from. To show you where out of the text that application derived. So that you would know... And you would be able to objectively look at and say, number one, does the text say what he says it does? If the text says what he says it does, then I need to agree with the application if the application is in keeping with the text. If what he says is not keeping with the text, I don't need to listen to the application If the interpretation is in keeping with the text, then I have to ask the question, is the application in keeping with the interpretation of the text? Or did he leave the text and just jump over here? We live in a day and age where people just want to be practical. Just tell me what it says. Just tell me how to live. Let's just get down to the basics. Why do we have to listen to a 45-minute message? can you just tell us in 10 minutes what the Bible says and what we should do? Sure, I could. But it wouldn't be to your health and it wouldn't be to your benefit. Because you're not to believe it because I say it. You're to believe it because the Word of God says it. And then you're to do it because you are convicted and you are convinced in your own heart and mind that that's what I need to do based on the Word of God. And people are being so deceived today because they are robbed of that important first step of understanding the interpretation of the scripture before you make application. The problem that Satan was presenting to Jesus was the misapplication. Of the scripture. He was correct. This is what it says. And he was even correct in the interpretation. Had Jesus thrown himself down. God would have protected him. Satan also knew that he misapplied. The application. And that's where Jesus said. Ah, but it also says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so he resisted the misapplication of Scripture. You're going to read so many conflicting and here conflicting things about divorce, euthanasia. Baptism—you just go on and on. It could be doctrinal, it could be, it could be uh, personal. You're, you can walk into a bookstore and find a book on that supports any position you want to take. Homosexuality—does the Bible teach that homosexuality is a sin? You're going to be able to find books that say yes, it does. And you're going to be able to find books that say, no, it doesn't. And you will find that both books will quote scripture. And both books will exegete scripture. And it's a cop-out. And it's a wrong to throw up your hands after you read two different books and say, well, they both they, they both look at the scripture. And and uh, it seems like they, 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 they both, uh, uh, you know, love God because there's the, the scripture and... and Who knows? Well, there is a truth. There is a right application. There is a right understanding of Scripture. And the Bible says that we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing our way through the word of truth. Rightly dividing means it actually is referring to a road that takes a straight path down the highway, that we don't deviate, we don't divert, that we are able to reconcile portions of Scripture that seemingly contradict and show how they don't contradict, even this morning, as I showed you how Matthew and Luke are not contradictory to one another, and that you can determine which is the chronological order and which is not. We are to take painstaking care in studying the Scriptures so that we don't force contradictions upon it where they don't exist, but we're to understand the scripture to such a degree that we are able to relate all these portions of scripture together and understand them in a practical way. We're not to hold two antithetical positions in, in, in antinomy with each other. So doctrinally, free will and the sovereignty of God. There are so many people to say, that would like to say, those are two things that you just can't, you just can't. Resolve. The Bible teaches both. It teaches free will and it teaches the sovereignty of God. Yes, it does. But believe me, it also resolves the tension. Not only does it teach the free will of man but the sovereignty of God, but it teaches us how to put the two things together. And not just throw up our hands and say, well, there's people that believe in free will. There's people who believe in election. And who knows? Who knows? What to believe that is not to be the way that we handle the scriptures. That is going to lead us to a place of temptation. And one of the temptations is simply to throw up our hands and quit studying the scripture and quit trying to reconcile these things. And Satan has a heyday with that. We live in a day and age in which knowledge has greatly increased. Technology, the things that are available for us to know, the medical advances in science, it's incredible. But can I say to you, in all honesty, that we live in one of the most deprived, not depraved, deprived times in the life of the world, or at least in America, with biblical knowledge. People don't know their Bibles. Everything points to that. Tests that are taken by entering students in uh, colleges. Do you know, at Wheaton, which is one of our best schools, that the majority of students could not put in chronological order? Adam, excuse me. Abraham and Moses. That's the cream of the crop. People don't know their Bibles. That's Satan's heyday. Satan uses our lack of knowledge of the Scriptures to tempt us. Be aware. Observations regarding Jesus' use of Scriptures. Number one, Jesus knew and used the Scriptures. He quoted them 25 times with the words, It is written. Jesus repeatedly corrected the misteachings of others. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to go through this very quickly. But but it's rather striking, so I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. And it was said whosoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you that everyone who divorces his wife, Matthew chapter 5, 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Notice each one of those is quotation of scripture. Each one of those is what you have been taught. And each one of those comes with "But I say unto you. But I say unto you, Matthew five thirty-eight. you have heard that it was said Here's scripture. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever does uh, slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors yourself. That's scripture. And hate your enemy. That's not. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's just in one chapter. Where Jesus takes on the teaching of the day and says, this is what you heard, but now I'm going to tell you what it says. And I'm going to tell you how to apply it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 12. After all this teaching, Matthew 16:12, Then they understood that he did not say, beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus said to the disciples, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. Why? Not because they didn't use scripture. The Pharisees prided themselves on their use of scripture. The Pharisees boasted in their use of scriptures. The Pharisees, most of them, memorized the scripture as they had it that day. If not all but at least great portions of it. And yet he said, beware of their teaching. Beware of their teaching. Beware of the teaching that you receive about what the Word of God says. Because you will either stand or fall based on that teaching. Next, Jesus used the Scriptures as a weapon. But he did not use them as a lucky charm. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The scripture represents the Bible as a a sword. The shield that we have is faith. That's our defensive weapon. Faith. And so Jesus was able to shield off the temptation of faith. Satan, because he had faith in God and was not going to put God to the test by jumping off this cliff. He had faith in God's Word. And he had a sword, which is the Word of God. And he came back with that sword and said, It is written. Notice the response. Notice how we respond to false teaching with the Word of God. And point out the error, point out the contradiction. Point out the inconsistency. Point out how it is misunderstood and misapplied. That takes time. That takes effort. That takes work. But it is worth it and it is appropriate. I said it's not a lucky charm. Because I think some people get the impression that the word of God itself is powerful and that's all you need. What I'm trying to point out to you is is that Jesus didn't simply quote the scriptures. He quoted accurately and appropriately the scriptures. He chose the scriptures that applied to the situation. It wasn't just that he used the word of God as though that was magical. He used the word of God in the proper and right way. And when I use the word magical, think of a vampire, if you will. What is supposed to do in a vampire? A sign of a cross if you make a sign of the cross that vampire is just going to wither and melt and just come to nothing at the sign of the cross those of you who aren't vampire fans how about how about uh, superman what is superman's undoing kryptonite that's right he come in contact with kryptonite he loses all his power he loses all his strength. He comes to nothing when he comes in the presence of kryptonite. That's not true of Satan in the Word of God. Satan just doesn't tower like the vampire. Or he doesn't just come to nothing like Superman and kryptonite. No. That Word of God is powerful when it is used correctly. When it's used accurately. It slays him when it is used In truth, it is the proper use of the Word of God that delivers us from temptation. I'm passionate about this because one of the sources, in fact, One of the primary sources for the cults is Bible studies conducted with people who don't know and don't understand the Word of God. Years ago, I had a Jehovah's Witness knock on my door. Two of them. They usually come in pairs. And uh, they started talking to me about the Bible and... uh, I said, well, that's not the way I understand it. And so we, we started meeting. They said, well, would you like to study the Bible together? I said, sure. i like nothing more than study the Bible. Let's do that. So they came and then they brought superior people and they brought superior people. And they kept moving up the ladder. And At one point, I had seven people gathered together for a Bible study. And so we're all sitting there, six against one. And I'm not saying this to pride myself. That's not the point. But What I'm saying to you is, it got more and more complicated, got more and more deceptive. They're pulling stuff out of out of uh, context, and I'm saying, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute." But the Bible says over here, and I keep bringing and, and and finally, they gave up. Finally, they just said, "You're the worst infidel that we've met. You you won't you won't hear what we have to say." And they just threw in a towel and they left. It's not what well, I'm saying. You. It's not about victory. It's not about winning. But it is about standing. And I grieve over Christians that get involved with Bible studies that tend to lead them away from the faith rather than develop them in the faith. I ache over the number of people who sit in pews and hear garbage that is espoused week after week, denying the deity of Christ, denying the virgin birth of Christ, denying the authority of the Scriptures. They're wrong! And we have to say it loud. And we have to say it clear. But we also have to say it with a brokenness and a concern. And we have to know and be able to defend our position and resist the onslaught of the evil one who would take this precious word and seek to undo us by it. May our study of the word of God be pure and sweet and may it bring us into an ever-increasing understanding and fellowship with God and may it never lead us to a place of unrighteousness and and holiness. Let us pray.